The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. I'm going to read um, the scripture for this morning. And as you know, I've been going through Exodus. Today I'm going to read Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 32. So Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be, may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his hand, go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. 
In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, 
and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the holy word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is a long passage. We're not going to touch every detail today. Some of it bleeds over into next week. But um, there's a lot here for us, isn't there? You know, I was thinking that safety is something that everyone desires, but it's elusive in our world. We think a lot about safety. If you're a parent, you know how many precautions are necessary for children with their various vulnerabilities. But even as we grow into adults, we still crave safety, right? We think about financial safety. We think about bodily health. We think about neighborhood safety, traffic safety, societal stability, freedom from war, relational security, internet security. Safety is a big deal. But what about the ultimate safety of our lives? The safety of our souls? Admittedly, it's a a little bit out of fashion to deal seriously with the need for spiritual safety, and I think that's exactly why so few find it. So whether you suspect this morning that you are an outsider with God, or if you think like the Israelites in Egypt, you consider yourself among the people of God. Either way, I want you to hear, and I want you to hear again today, the gospel according to Moses. The good news that our God secures a people. He makes them secure by cleansing and redeeming and setting them free. And he does it through two judgments. Through two judgments. Now normally we wouldn't think of safety coming through judgment. And that's probably because we have a view of divine judgment that's divorced from justice. But if we understand that justice very much does renew the world, then we can start to find assurance and even beauty in the plagues on Egypt. Yes, beauty. To see how, let's review the larger story. So God had told his creation, be fruitful and multiply. And then God had set apart one family of the earth for the purpose of bringing blessing to all others. Then he brought that family to Egypt. And through Joseph, he protected that land and he brought great prosperity to that land. But after Joseph's generation, the descendants of Israel were for 400 years marginalized and abused and brutally enslaved. And then their male infants were systematically slaughtered. So Pharaoh was working against God's good purposes for humanity. All of Egypt 
had enjoyed the fruits of creation, God's good gifts, and they'd enjoyed the blessing of God's people living in their very midst, and yet, all the while, they were committing acts of chaos and darkness. And God responds to these anti-creation forces with judgments of decreation all around. So he, in a sense, unravels creation. He puts it in reverse. He takes back the good things that they had enjoyed. The punishment fits the crime. And so whether we're talking about animals or weather or natural resources, everything seems to be disintegrating into chaos and darkness. And you know, the same happens to us today. In Romans chapter 1, it says that we have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we've worshipped created things rather than the creator. And because of that, we're on a downward spiral of disordered bodies, disordered minds, disordered relationships, unraveling into an increasingly dark existence. And what's more, living in such a world that's under judgment means that even if we aren't rejecting God, even those who aren't rejecting him, are still affected by those consequences of evil. And that was true for the Israelites in Egypt also. They suffered through some of the plagues, though a distinction was made and... um, They were free from some of the plagues. They didn't experience the hail. They didn't experience the darkness. And we'll see that they were spared from this final plague of death. So, when we think about our own situation, while the world around us would say that mental breakdown and addictions and gun violence and destruction by earthquakes or cancer, all that is brought about by merely natural causes. No, scripture points us to a judge who superintends over it all. So these plagues in the most prominent empire in the world in 1400 BC are assigned to all civilizations always that the judgment of God is real. And here in chapter 11 we read that the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt and afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. A truly new start for the people of Israel would come through this judgment on the land. And the description of the plague is, I mean, horrific. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And down in chapter 12, verse 29, we see that this is exactly what happened. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Can you just imagine the the horror movie sort of feel of that night? There are screams all over the place, blood curdling, a great cry in Egypt. And ironically, bookends um, with in chapter two, it was the Israelites who had a great cry for rescue from slavery. Here we see a very different great cry going up. And incidentally. Um, One of the more probable schemes for the timing of the Exodus was during the reign of Amenhotep II, and his successor as Pharaoh was a second-born son 
Tutmos the fourth. Perhaps we know the reason why. Whether it was Amenhotep or whoever the Pharaoh was, we see that he is finally undone. For the first time, he refers to the people of God as Israelites, uh, their actual name, rather than the more derogatory term Hebrew, which meant something like transient or low-class foreigner. And Pharaoh has this moment of clarity, just for a window. And he says in verse 32, bless me also. He's finally come to realize that if he's going to enjoy any good, it's going to have to come from the hand of Yahweh. So this first Passover judgment of God had humbled the proud and exalted the humble and God-reliant. And the Israelites didn't just escape from the Egyptians, they also plundered their wealth. God himself had directed them to do that as early as chapter 3. And if you're starting to feel sorry for the Egyptians at all, just remember there's 400 years of uncompensated labor for which fair wages were due. So the Egyptians now are finally happy to give that. They're desperate to get rid of the Israelites and their scary God. And last week, Chris reminded us that the goal behind all of this upheaval is that Yahweh's name would be known throughout the earth. God Almighty, here in the ancient world, put on grand display his unrivaled superiority over humanity, over nature, over history, and also over so-called gods. And this was important because there was a demonic reality at work behind the false worship of the Egyptians. Notice in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Now, the previous plagues had shown that the Egyptian pantheon of gods was utterly powerless against the true God. And this final plague of death would further just hit that home because it touches on the arena of life and death. The Egyptians were used to dealing with the gods Osiris or Anubis, with those concerns. But those gods are powerless against Yahweh. And in Egyptian mythology, midnight was the time when the gods fought. And so Yahweh says, at midnight, I will deliver this final blow on the spiritual realities that have been driving the Egyptians' futile practices. And we talked two weeks ago about the fact that God exposes our objects of empty devotion too, right? The Egyptians had their idols, their idolatrous rituals. We have our pills or our mutual funds or our expensive toys or our unhealthy relationships that become, we let them become the source of our hope. We let them become the surety of our happiness until they fail us, which they will which they must if we're ever to look up and trust the true source of life. And, you know, it, it can be possible to feel like, man, this judgment is just, is just so harsh. Maybe you feel that way. And that's, I think that's because it's not natural for us to see what a crime it really is to grasp for life apart from and opposed to the God who made us, the God who moment by moment sustains us. Instead, we get caught up in this mindset that really has us at the center of everything. And, you know, we may concede the existence of God, but we have in our minds that there's this sort of unwritten contract, right? God agrees to give us um, a long and fulfilling life, uninterrupted by any tragedy or, or uh, limitations to my options. And, and then if he does a good enough job of that, then eventually I'll, I'll give him some sort of... Um, you know, respect and allegiance. 
But the fact of the matter is there's no contract like that. Just because God doesn't act in judgment immediately against us, which he could, it doesn't mean that, that he doesn't have the right to do that. He can judge whenever he wants, by whatever means he wants. So here, the power and the justice of God are exhibited in this death plague on Egypt. And what that power accomplishes is not just the judgment of Egypt, but it accomplishes the release of God's people from captivity. Captivity to earthly tyrants who were fueled by false gods. And, you know, part of the beauty of Exodus is that God is revealed here. He, he reveals himself as one who will not tolerate the oppression of the vulnerable. Can you entrust yourself to a God like that? He will not tolerate the oppression of the vulnerable, and he will rescue those who are his from injustice. He does it all the time. He frequently does it in time and space. But we know that he is also in the process of liberating us, finally, from this world of tyranny. These old earth days are numbered. And one day the Lord will descend with the sound of a trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that, that is a beautiful promise of liberation. And this concept of liberation in Exodus has been really inspirational across the generations. It's motivated all sorts of movements, including the emancipation of slaves in America, the civil rights movement. But Exodus doesn't leave us with the concept of liberation alone. It intertwines the narrative of liberation with the narrative of redemption, how God purchased us for himself. So we need to understand that we need both, right? God's people don't only need to be set free. If we just stop there, that would be a very American and very flawed gospel. We don't just need liberation. Because the thing is, liberation to what? Liberation to be our own person? The thing is, that's actually a non-category. Like it or not, we frail humans are in a realm of powerful spirits. And behind all tyrants in this world is the ultimate tyrant, Satan. And in Eden, we gave him permission to poison our minds and our wills. And so even if we're free from Egypt, and we're apparently self-determinative in the world, we are not actually self-determinative at all. Because the power of sin that dwells within us makes us willing collaborators with the enemy of all good. So... This leaves us with a huge question. Okay, Egypt is going to be punished. The tyrant is going to be judged. Great news. But what about me? How can I be won back from this cosmic treason? How can I be cleansed from the way that I've defiled myself and from the judgment that I deserve? How can I start to consistently live for what's noble and true and lasting? In other words... How can we not just try to be safe and neutral and independent, which isn't even a thing, but how can we be purchased for God? And chapter 12 tells us clearly how it happens, through a perfect substitute. And these words from Moses may have come as a shock to the Israelites in Egypt. Like, what he's giving us instructions to protect against a final plague? No, but no, plagues are for the Egyptians, right? God is on our side. We shouldn't have to pass through judgment. But the truth of the matter is that they did. 
Thankfully, though, it would be a different judgment. There were essentially two judgments of God that night. There, there was a corpse in every house. But the question was whether it was human or whether it was a lamb. Would they receive the judgment on themselves or would the lamb receive the judgment in their place? The God of justice judges all evil, even the evil within his own people. He wouldn't be good if he didn't. But this night of Passover in ancient Egypt, he showed us that his judgment on his people would fall on a substitute. And if you're a Christian today, that's likely a very familiar concept. But I beg you to to hear me carefully because this truth needs to fuel the way you live today. And the Holy Spirit wants to use these truths to strengthen your faith today. So let's think about the different components of Passover. This is such an essential building block for understanding the rest of the Bible. So I'm just going to spend a bit of time asking and answering some, some questions that might arise from the text. So first, why were only the firstborn targeted in this plague? That seems kind of arbitrary, right? Well, of course, a lot of Israelite firstborn sons had been drowned by the Egyptians in the Nile, so there is some equity to this, but there's more than that going on. In the ancient world, and in in many cultures today, the firstborn had the unique role of receiving and perpetuating the family's position and wealth, and so it was through the firstborn that the rest of the family would be represented and provided for. And if you remember, back in Exodus 4.23, God had told Moses, and this was before any of the negotiations with Pharaoh had even started. He said, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. So Israel is envisioned by God as the firstborn son of humanity. He had told Abraham back in Genesis, through your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's putting an exclamation mark on that right now. But also, when you think about the firstborn, remember that this isn't the first time that a substitution would happen to save the firstborn son and heir. Abraham and Sarah's only son, Isaac, was almost sacrificed until a substitutionary animal was provided. And it wouldn't be the last time that a firstborn son was placed on the altar. We know that Isaac's trauma was a prophecy of the greater son of Abraham, Jesus, who would also carry wood on his back up Mount Moriah. But there would be no substitute because he himself was the male lamb without blemish. That was the trajectory of God's plan that we see throughout scripture. In Genesis, with Isaac, we see that a lamb could be a substitute for a person. Here in Exodus, at the Passover, we see that a lamb could be a substitute for a family. In the next book of the Bible, Leviticus, we have instructions for the Day of Atonement, and we would see that a lamb could be a substitute for the whole nation. And then we get to the New Testament, and we see that the right lamb could be the substitute for all of humanity. John the Baptist announced Jesus' ministry saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after the cross and the resurrection, Peter wrote that we've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by our forefathers, not with precious silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
And Christ himself drew the connection at the, pa- at the Last Supper. The Last Supper was a Passover meal. It was a Passover meal, but Jesus just confused his disciples utterly by not sticking with the program. He didn't use the Passover meal to look backward as every Passover meal does. Instead, he speaks of events that would happen the next day. And he talks about his body being given for them and his blood being poured out to establish a new promise. Before the Passover, before the the lambs were slaughtered in Exodus, if you remember, the plague right before that was three days of darkness. And in Matthew 27, we're told that before Jesus died, there were three hours of darkness. See, we're meant to see that the plagues marked for us have fallen on Jesus. He absorbed the decreation that we deserved so that we could be created anew. So at Passover and in Christ, we do see an exchange of a lamb for a firstborn. In other words, a lamb for the people of God. And Hebrews 12 reminds us that through the blood of Jesus, we have come to the city of the living God and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So another question. Back in Moses' day, why was blood applied to the doorposts? Did the Lord need help identifying his people? No, the text says that it was a sign for them. It was a sign for them to signify and to know themselves that they were appropriating the blood of the Lamb. They couldn't simply drift into salvation. They faced a choice of whether or not they would seize upon the mercy that God had promised. So there might have been Israelites that night who didn't take the words of Moses seriously, who just didn't want to do something like that. And they would have forever regretted that apathy or that cynicism. And so will we. You know, it's not enough to live among the people of God. And it's not enough to be thought of as one of the people of God. And it's not enough to know all about God's offer of a substitute in our place. We each have to pass through a point in time whereby our hearts are changed and the saving blood of the crucified lamb is what comes to mark our lives. For some people, that's a specific moment of awakening where they hear, they believe the gospel, and by grace, they respond to it. For other people, it's a process of discovery and there's these interactions, maybe spanning months or years, and then one day they wake up and they say, you know, I, I believe it. I, I, I belong to him. I know I've received this mercy. And then for other people, they just grew up hearing about this mercy and they can't even remember a day when they didn't believe it. But as they grew older, they grew into it and it became not mainly their parents' faith, but definitively their own. So however it looked... Has the blood of Christ been applied in your life? Imagine the faith that it took for these first Passover recipients. Yeah, they wanted to be free from slavery, but they were also likely terrified. I mean, they had seen back in chapter 5 that following Moses could backfire. And they themselves had suffered from some of the plagues. Could they really entrust themselves to such a dangerous God? And these burdens, yeah, they weren't nice, but it's all they'd ever known for generations past. Could they really just walk away from it all? After all, Egypt was where their fathers and grandfathers had lived and died. 
How could they trust that what lay outside of Egypt was in fact better for them? And likewise, relying on the blood of the Lamb has a cost for us too. We also have to surrender the mirage of predictable control that life in slavery offers us. And we too have to put ourselves fully in the hands of the one who leads us away from the lifestyle we've always known. Have you seized upon God's Passover mercy in Christ, which not only saves you from destruction, but saves you for God, marking you as one of his people for his purposes? You know, the, the, the fact of the, the display of the blood on the doorpost, that shows right from the start that the identification of Israel with Yahweh, it couldn't just be an inward reality. It had to be outward in expression. Blood on the doorposts for everyone to see. And the same is true in our Christian lives. We are called to outward lives of confessing Christ. What's going in, on in our hearts, it should match what's being declared in the public arena because if we truly rely on the blood of the Lamb, it won't be a hidden reality. Another question, why was blood applied with hyssop? Why not just any plant to daub the blood? Does it really matter or any instrument that would get the job done? Well, in the rest of Scripture, hyssop is a symbol of purity. And this speaks to the fact that the blood of Christ doesn't only free us from slavery to sin, it also frees us into heartfelt service for God. So the Apostle Paul puts it this way, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So the blood of Christ accomplishes both. And this is very, very good news for us when purity or holiness feel elusive. Remember the song lyric? I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. We don't have to try to conjure up goodness by our own strength. In fact, if we do, it will only frustrate us. We try to push it down. Sin, just stay down. Don't show your ugly face. And then, and then we're doing it by our own strength. And then what happens? That, that fear or that anger or that pride or despair causes sin to pops up somewhere else and we're trying to suppress that. That's not the way we're meant to live. We're meant to trust Christ for our holiness just as we trusted him for our escape from judgment. The same blood purchased your purity. So trust in the finished work of Christ to fuel your unfinished work of killing sin. Last question. If, if people had marked their doors and if God knew that, you know, he didn't need these doors to know his people, right? Because he's God. So why did they all need to stay inside until the morning? If they'd, like, couldn't they just, you know, make the sacrifice and then we're good, right? Well, this was a key warning to them and to us that what's required here isn't just to identify once with the lamb and then move on. No, they needed to remain under the cover of the blood of the lamb until the light came. And similarly, we must persevere in the faith to the very end. If we wander outside of Christ before the day of deliverance, then his blood was only ever a cheap token to us. And then we will be judged like the idolaters we are. 
there are other specific instructions given here for how the Passover meal was carried out, and we are going to look at some of those next week. Um, but when we think about this section as a whole, I think what we see clearly is that this is a choice that stands before each of us of which judgment of God will we opt for. Do you want the judgment that comes at a time we're not expecting, that comes on us horrifically and justly and undoes us completely and forever? Or would you have the judgment of God fall on the substitute, on the sacrificial lamb, the one who will not only cause destruction to pass over, but who will claim you for God, purify you, and weave you into the assembly of the firstborn? The 19th century London preacher Charles Spurgeon told a story of a fellow pastor's interaction with a young woman. And this young woman actually acknowledged the truth of Christ's sacrifice, but frankly, she just wanted to live her own life for a while. And so he asked her, Hannah, do you intend to come to Christ one day? Yes, she replied, I do. Well now, he said, will you give me a date when you'll come to Christ? You're 20 now, will you come to the Lord Jesus when you're 30? Will you put that down as a definite promise? She answered, well, I don't want to promise that because I might be dead before I'm 30. Ten years is a long time. I hope I'll know the Lord before that. Well, Hannah, the man said, we'll say nine years then. That's to be the time when you'll yield to the mercy of God. She said, but I hope it'll be before then. No, he said, the bargain's made. You'll have to run risks for nine years, but you made the bargain that you'll come to Christ in nine years' time. Let it stand. You run the risk. Again, she disagreed. It would be an awful thing for me to wait nine years because I might be lost in that time. So then he offered, well, suppose we say that you'll serve the Lord in 12 months' time. Will you just take this year and spend it in the service of Satan, and then when you've enjoyed yourself that way, give your heart to Christ? And somehow the young woman felt that that was a long time and that was a, a very dangerous idea. She thought to herself, I, I wouldn't want to be hung over a chasm and then for someone to say, oh, I'll pull you up at the end of the year and, and set your feet on a rock. So she couldn't bear that thought. And as her pastor pressed her to set a time and he brought it down little by little, at last she said, oh, sir, it had better be tonight. Pray to God that I would give my heart to the Lord. It's dreadful to be without a Savior. I would have Christ as mine tonight. Do you feel that sort of urgency? That you need to get out of Egypt? That you need your judgment to fall on the substitute that the Lord has provided? That you want to be included in the new story that the God of mercy is writing with his redeemed people? Throughout this passage, the safety of those behind the bloodstained door is emphasized. There's safety behind the blood of the Lamb. And for those of us who have already taken shelter there, maybe what we need to focus on is repenting of the various fears that haunt our steps. Do you fear the schemes of tyrants in your life? Are you paralyzed by the thought of the impurities that still lie within? Or just what, what influences of darkness have you awake at night or cause you anxiety throughout the day? Trust in the blood of the Lamb and trust in the power of the God who does battle at midnight. And whether you're coming to him for the first time or whether you need to confess that you've neglected this salvation, eat of the Lord's Passover. Partake of Christ by faith 
eagerly. Because familiar as this world may be, here we have no lasting home. Feast on Christ, and then you will know the peace of safety and prepare to follow him into what's new and lasting. God, we ask that you would do this work of grace in each of us here this morning. We ask that you would make us instruments of grace to speak of this Passover to many others. Lord, as we celebrate your supper now, help us to see it as the true Passover, as the fulfillment of all these words of Moses, all these things that actually happened in history. We know they were a prophecy of something greater that would come later. And so we look now to your supper that you've given us, a reminder of the gospel, a reminder of your mercy to us. Help us to see it as the the linchpin of history and the center of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are found behind the blood-marked door, so to speak, if you have taken advantage of the mercy of Christ in your own heart, then you're invited to participate with us today. And what we do is we go out to the sides and we grab the elements and then we'll return to our seats and partake together.